Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. And we are here today with Ashley Bryan, author and illustrator of the 2017 Newbery Honor book, Freedom Over Me, as well as myriad other books, which he has written and or illustrated, uh, multiple Coretta Scott King Award winner, five-time Coretta Scott King Honor winner. He has won every award that you can imagine. I mean, every Lifetime Achievement Award is unbelievable. <laughs> and he works in so many different mediums. It's incredible. Yeah. We are so honored to have him here with us today. Hi, Ashley. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, good to be with you. Um, your books are so full of life and music. We were wondering, do you listen to music while you write or while you create art? And if so, what do you listen to? I used to listen to the classical music as I did my work in my studio. I now listen to nothing. I let the thoughts in my head get it to work. That sounds so peaceful. And I review, in my head, I review poems that I've memorized. That's like the music for me now. That's perfect. Poems that you've written or poems that you love? Poems of the world that I've loved, of Emily Dickinson, of Rainer Maria Rilke, and of other writers, you know, Keith Shelley, Byron Words, with all of the poets. I love poetry. It's at the heart of everything I do. In your autobiographical book, uh, Words to My Life Song, you share that your childhood home was filled with around 100 birds. Did you have a favorite of those birds? (laughs) Well, my dad loved birds. My mom said it was because he was a child. He always had a slingshot shooting the birds. So now he's making up for it, and he collected them, and they were all in cages there were parakeets, there were finch, canaries, little birds. But he was always coming home. My mom would say, Ernest, not another bird. He'd come <laughs> with his hand behind his back. She knew it was another bird. <laughs> and lots of birds appear in your work. Do you have a favorite bird in general? No, I just like all those little birds. I like all birds, you know. They're the beautiful. whole thing of flight is such a mystery. That whenever I see a bird, I always say, oh, that's my soul in flight. Hmm. I see a bird in the air. I say that. Do you have any particular memories of illustrating Richard Wright's novel Black Boy in 1950? No, that was interesting because it was the first request that came to me to do a commercial work. It just was offered to me, and I worked in it with my little scratchboard black and white drawings. But I had no contact with Richard Wright when I did that book. Did you get to read the book before you did the drawings, or did you just have to? Oh, yes. No, I always read very carefully whatever I'm going to draw. So every chapter I would read maybe several times, and then I worked out the black and white drawings. Mm -hmm. They're beautiful. So I've actually loved that illustrations for that book since I was in high school. Yeah. (laughs) And congratulations on your most recent Coretta Scott King Illustrator Award for Infinite Hope, a black artist's journey from World War II to peace. Yes. I said that meant everything to me to be recognized for Infinite Hope, a very special book. Well, also in Infinite Hope, um, you include some really beautiful small moments of humanity and humor. 
um, against the backdrop of the horrors of World War II. Um, the title of the book comes from a Martin Luther King Jr. quote, we must accept finite disappointment but never lose infinite hope. That view of optimism as survival seems uh, keenly relevant today. Can you tell us a little bit about putting together such a personal story? Well, the title was chosen by my editor, who, when she heard the story of my having been in the army, which nobody knew about over 40 years, it was only through a conference that met each year, CLNE, Children's Literature in New England in San Francisco. And I happened to say when they announced that the theme for the following year would be war and peace in children's literature, I said, oh, when I was in the army, they said, what? You were in the army? <laughs> for over 40 years, I never said anything. And that's how it got out. And when my editor heard of it, she wanted to make the book of it. So she chose that title. And then she chose to include as much of my work as she could so it would reach readers of all ages. It is a most unusual book. And judges have had a hard time of it and have overlooked it because they couldn't fit it into their category. But it's not meant for a category. It's meant for all ages. And so I was very happy when the Coretta Scott King Award included it in their honor awards. But Caldecott Newberry completely overlooked it. And I just got news from my editor that the annual Bologna Book Fair, which reviews all the books of the world from all countries, chose it as the best nonfiction of 2019, oh, that which is, will give it a wider audience. That is lovely and well-deserved because it is such an amazing book. Yes, it's most unusual, even to me. I <laughs> say there's nothing like it to have a work that, a, that is for a ch smallest child to the oldest person. In the world of young people's book, book, there's more of a focus when you do a book. That book has no single focus. So it's it's been a challenge to judges to open up the way they've considered books to see if it's something that should be regarded. I think it should have been included, not because I wrote it, but because I love it. I think it's fantastic that it exists because there's nothing like it. The um, the material that's included, have you just kept all of those for since the war, all that paper, all those drawings, all those letters? Well, yes, what I used to do, I would occasionally mail home my drawings. And um, so that's how they were all kept to be used later in the book. And also, my friend Eva was a dear friend from Cooper Union, and she moved to California and kept up through the war and writing. And her family, when she died, sent all of her letters to me. And that's how they could be included in the book with my letters to her. That's wonderful that they saved them. Well, to switch gears just a little bit, we would love to talk about your Newbery honor for Freedom Over Me. Well, Freedom Over Me, that was a special book because it was based on a document of slaves for sale that included just a name and a price. And when I got that document, I said, I would like to bring them alive. So I decided to do a portrait of a number of them and tell the story of their life, what their dreams would have been and what their present life was. So that's how I'm glad it was recognized. 
Well, in Freedom Over Me, so much is about voice, um, the voice that's given to each person, making them individuals, but also literal voices raised in song or speaking in hushed tones about freedom. Why did these particular people speak to you? Yes, well, the thing is, I was at this auction where there were these slave documents for sale, and I acquired as many as I could. And then I decided to do a book of one of them, and I chose that auction with the nine slaves that I wanted to include and develop a portrait based on family and friends, the portraits, and then created a life for them. And that was very important to me to make them as human beings, not just cattle for sale. One of your characters, John, is 16 years old. And he's an artist. And he says in his poem, no matter what work I do on the estate, even learning carpentry from Stephen, I think of drawing. And this reminds us so much of what we read about your life, particularly how when you were drafted and had to leave art school to go to war, you would carry art supplies in your gas mask and continue to draw. Did you relate to John as you were writing him? Um, I, I when, when I chose that document, I was thinking of myself. So it was created thinking of myself, that no matter what I do, drawing is going to be at the heart of it. Each set of pages shows a sharp contrast between the bare facts about each slave with their age and price and daily tasks, and then their more brilliantly colored inner lives. And, you know, you have to imagine that it would seem that way for them in life as well that they would let themselves go with these vivid dreams and hopes for their fellow slaves, but then they get brought back again and again to this bitter reality. Was it difficult to find the balance between the two aspects of each person, either visually or in the text? That's what I wanted the reader to get a think about, what it means to be a human being with hopes of things you'd like to realize in your life and to be considered just as chattel to be sold and work for, and not paid, but just do the, what you're bid with no rights. And I wanted the reader to feel what that could mean, like put yourself in that position, and how would you feel? And I've tried to bring out things in their lives to make you feel sympathetic to what they experience. And we talked about earlier about your work and music, have you yes. ever played any instruments? Because so much of your work yes. has that musicality. Yes, well, I I, I play the... Um, I, when I was growing up, there was the WPA, the Works Progress Administration. The government hired artists and musicians to teach in communities throughout the country. And my parents sent the six children out to whatever was free. They could take care of us and feed and clothe and house us but they couldn't go beyond that. So we were all taking piano lessons and we were all drawing and painting. I was the only one who was so deeply affected by drawing and painting that I wanted it to be my profession, what I would pursue in life. But my brothers and sisters have made art and music a part of their lives. And with their children, they all see to it that they also do, their, do artwork and study piano. Or in your case, just put it both together. I mean, even in your illustrations, which obviously by definition have no sound, like you can see the music 
you know, the, the movement yeah. is <laughs> unmistakable. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what I loved about doing the spirituals, because those were the songs of the black slaves, which are so moving and so beautiful. And so it meant everything to me to do those block prints and walk together children. And I'm going to sing those two volumes. It's just amazing to me. It's considered that in medieval times, all art was created for the greater glory of God. And Bach, on all his compositions, wrote SDG, Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone the glory. And it is said that the only time that spirit of an art given solely to God was from these songs of black slaves called spirituals in the Western world. And I wanted them to be made available and recognize where they came from. I also, I read that um, on the Ashley Bryan Center website, that you you illustrated and retold so many folk tales, or you have you've been doing that for so many years, because they hadn't been written down in an accessible way. Yes. When did you start collecting those tales? Well, in my love of folk tales and fairy tales, I would look for the translations that scholars did from African countries. But because of the way in which they were written in an academic way, I said, I want to bring a feeling of the voice to how I wrote. So I re referred to poetry and I used rhythm and rhyme in expressive ways of getting across the printed word because poetry is meant to be heard. And so the words are on the page, but if you don't hear the voice, it's not a poem. And I told my friends earlier, there was an experience I had at a school that I visited where I had worked with the voice in poetry and always got across to the children that there are words on a page. It does not become a poem until you find the voice in those words. And this principal said to me, Ashley, the other day I got a call from a parent who said, what are you doing with my children? <laughs> she said, I called my son down for dinner last night. And he said, I can't come yet, Ma. I'm finding my voice. <laughs> so I, it, it, I love that, that he was working away at finding the voice of the words on the page of a poem. That's beautiful. And that's what I, that means a lot. That's beautiful. Yes. Well, we read in an interview you did with Publishers Weekly that you have always loved to create with cast-off things like scraps and sea glass and mussel shells even. Um, in your writing, you seem to be just as fascinated with society's cast-off people and just as able to find the beauty in them that others easily <laughs> miss. <laughs> um, what do you That's think? That's a nice way of <laughs> it's a nice way of putting cast-off people, yes. Well, what do you think? <laughs> what do you think makes the cast-offs of the world such a passion of yours? Well, I've always been interested in what people don't consider at all as a value and open up the value that I see in whatever it is. And that's why puppets have always been fascinating to me, even as a child. And we began making things from what we'd pick up on the street, my sister and I. And I continued that when I came to this small Cranberry Island, as I'd walk the shore, I'd pick up the bone, the shell, the driftwood, and they began to become personages, puppets. And I continue to this day doing that whenever I'm home, picking up things. And But I'm not walking as much as I had because my right leg is a bit weak now. So I no longer do all the travels doing programs. 
throughout the United States and in other countries as I had in the past. When you pick up the materials for a puppet, do you generally create the persona as you make the puppet, or do you have characters in mind that are you're just waiting to find the right pieces for? I work with the pieces, and they tell me how, what to put together, what will become a personage. And then later, from my book of African names, I began to give them African names, selected from the book what the names meant in the African country. And so that's how they continue to this day. I create the form, and then... I look at it and feel a, what would be a good name by going through this book of African names and then selecting a name that has a meaning in Africa and giving it to the puppet. And that's why I was so happy when my editor asked me, could I do a book of the puppets? Because then I created a poem for each one using the African name. Yes. What kind of tools and or adhesive do you use to create the puppets? Well, I use the papier-mâché especially because that's what binds whatever I pick up, like the sea glass pieces to make the panels on the life of Jesus. It's I make a mush of newspaper and mix paste with it, and then it becomes a, a paper mush. And when I go around the piece or if I attach it to a, a horn or to a shell, it dries and holds it in place. So that's my main working material, the paper mache to hold the forms together. Have you written any puppet shows? Have you scripted any puppet shows? I have, but they've not been performed. But I've worked on telling the story and, and doing drawings of the puppets for each frame of the story because a friend was planning to do a film, but it never came about, yes. But they're ideal, puppets are ideal because they can become anything you say they are. And the audience believes who they are. That's why at the end of a puppet show, when the puppeteer stands up, you get a shock because you've created a world of the puppet scale as a living beings. Do you have a puppet collection of your own? I mean, I know you've got the Ashley Bryan Center, but do you have any personal ones that you just keep yourself because you like them? Well, I have little hand puppets that I've always kept, that I got when I was a student in Germany. Oh, wow. There was a, yes, and I still have those. And they're, they're on a wall in my house, and I can refer to them, or children can play with them also. Well, it's nice yes. that you share. <laughs> <laughs> So you said in an interview with Kirkus that you were working on illustrating the Langston Hughes poem, My People. Um, can you tell us anything about that project? Well, that's a well, it's not to be a puppet, but illustrating the words. It's the poem that I begin almost all my, my programs with. My People by Langston Hughes. The night is beautiful, so the faces of my people. The stars are beautiful, so the eyes of my people. Beautiful also is the sun. Beautiful also are the souls of my people. I begin all of my programs with that. And I ask teachers also to use it to begin their school day by chanting and having the children chant back with them. That's lovely. In relation to that of chanting back and forth, which I think means a lot, 
a teacher visited me one day and she said, I taught, it. I taught my class and now the whole school is chanting it. Everyone wanted to learn it. And it was a poem that I wrote and oh. it was called Rain Coming. When a mermaid winks, look for a shower. Children at the seashore, splashing by the hour, see rain coming, soaked as they can get, cry quick. Duck under so you don't get wet. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> so she said all the children at school learned that poem. So I picked up on it after she told me. <laughs> Quick duck under so you don't get wet. <laughs> I can see that being really popular with our kids, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We would love to hear about the, how the Ashley Bryan Center was created and what the mission is. Yes, it was created by friends on the island who wanted my work to be available throughout the year because it's a small community of lobster fishermen in which I live. And we all have that outreach of sharing whatever we have or do with each other. And so I thought I, I was very touched that they wanted to do this. And they raised the money to have a building built, which is the AB Center, which now holds the sea glass panels and the puppets. So you are painting in the garden right now. Um, what else are you working on? Well, right now I'm just doing sketches of the nieces and nephews, the little ones. When I go home, I'll be painting outdoors in the gardens, in my neighbor's gardens. I think one of the main things is my love of poetry, that it's at the center of life and to, you know, and be finding the voice in the words means everything. And that's what's delighted the children, because when I'm with them, I'll give them variations. I'll choose a poem which has very quiet words and say it very quietly. Then a poem which has very loud need for words. But it gives them the play of the voice. Mm -hmm. And that was captured by the National Geographic when they did their study of me many years ago, of my meeting with an audience and playing with the voice, having the audience chant back and forth. It means a lot to me to engage an audience when I'm speaking, so I'm not just giving a talk, but that they are helping me and are sharing it also. Well, thank you again so much for being here with us. We, we really have enjoyed it. Been a joy sharing with you. Thank you for listening to the Newberry Tart podcast today. We interviewed Ashley Bryan, the incredible artist and writer and poet and puppeteer and he, all around human being. We were really delighted to speak with him. He's just a, a joy, a joyful human. Check the show notes on our website. We'll put a link on Facebook, too, in case you want to find out anything more about his body of work, the Ashley Bryan Center. Please rate and review us wherever you're listening. It helps other people find the podcast and helps us keep going. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.